The wisdom of St. Benedict, which has lasted a long time, he wrote the rule um, in the 6th century, and it's been around actively ever since. So this is, this is a commentary, this is a, the rule in Latin and in English with a commentary and quite a lot of uh, academic apparatus. But the rule itself is very short. So the half of that. So that's that's the rule. Just that short bit there. And it's not a Buddhist sutra or a theological treatise. It's a rule for people living in community. And the particular characteristic that they have is that they agree, they want to live in community with uh, a respect for authority and seeking God truly, truly seeking God. That's the definition really of uh, the member of Benedict's community. Now, it was a rule for monasteries, but a monastery at the time that he wrote this rule were not what we think of today, the, the, the big, beautiful, medieval monasteries, which Bonveau was in the 12th century. Bonveau started 600 years after Benedict. And by that time, the Benedictine way of life, Benedictine monasticism, uh, had become, uh, was becoming much more institutionalized and clericalized. Um, much more sort of in the institution of the church. And it made a tremendous contribution to that institution and to Western society. Perhaps the rule of St. Benedict is more is 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 the most influential single document affecting Western civilization, European life, after the Bible. Even though the Constitution of the European Union makes no mention of the fact that uh, Europe was a Christ, was a Christian uh, idea, a Christian formation, actually. But the reason for that is because the institution offended, and understandably offended, a lot of people over the centuries. But St. Benedict uh, was writing and imagining and living a form of life much more similar to what we're doing here at Bombay than what you might think of as a, as a monastery, where, which, which, which is, has a more theatrical and symbolic uh, and formal kind of life. You know, theatrical in the sense that the monks wear habits all day and there's, it's where the, you know, there's, there are processions and it's a beautiful way of life if, if you like it. But um, probably St. Benedict's life was quite different. We don't, we don't know all the details because he didn't go into too many details. But we know that it was a lay community 
and um, the pro pro procedure for receiving new members of the community was very simple compared with what it is in an institution. For example, uh, today if you go to a monastery and say, I want to be a monk, they'll say, uh, well, that's nice, you know, come and see us several times over the next year, then come for maybe a year as a postulant, then a year as a novice, or maybe more if you need more time, because people today take a long time to make a commitment compared with the past. And uh, then you have three years or more, up to seven years, in simple vows. And then, if you're still alive, you make your, uh, your uh, profession as a monk. So it's become quite regulated, and it, there's some questions about whether it should be so regulated, whether it should be simplified. And there are new forms of monasticism, still inspired by the rule of St. Benedict, are being developed. And this is one of them, what we're doing here. So, but for Benedict, you knocked on the door and they said, just wait a minute, we want to make sure you're not a terrorist. And then they welcome them in and read the rule to them and say, do you, do you want to come and uh, share this life? And they said, yes, I'd like to find out. So they would be given someone to mentor them and they would then join in the life of prayer, work and study. Quite regulated in terms of the timetable, as we are here. Um, and then after one year, they would listen to the rule again. They would have been reading the rule, had the rule read to them and say, is, is, is this what you want? And do you truly seek God? Or are you just looking for an escape? Are you, whatever, you know, do you really know why we are here and what, why you're coming? And if the discernment is yes, they do, then the, they are welcomed into the community and, and they make their profession as a monk. And they promise to live in the spirit of the rule by three vows. And the three vows are not as they became later in in religious life, the consecrated life in the Catholic Church, poverty, chastity, and obedience. But Benedict expressed it in three complementary uh, precepts or vows. Uh, obedience, stability, and conversion of life. And those three principles Obedience, which comes from the Latin word to listen. So it's about listening to the presence and the action of God in your life, especially in your relationships with each other. If you're living in community, your relationships with the people you're living with are the bread and butter of your spiritual life. We find God in and through those relationships. And of course, those relationships are not always perfect. As human relationships uh, are very human. So we are obedient, St. Benedict says, not only vertically, you know, to the necessary structures of the 
organization, every community, every family has to have some kind of organization. And at the end of the day, um, somebody has to, the buck has to stop somewhere. But the, the, uh, it's, it's not simply a military kind of obedience, but it's a horizontal obedience. And the horizontal obedience is that the community members must be obedient to each other. Now that's a little more subtle than saying just do what the abbot tells you to do and don't ask any questions. So this principle, the precept of obedience uh, has a practical aspect, but it's essentially a spiritual one. Secondly, the principle of stability. So, stabilitas. Uh, stability is important to, to human life. One of the challenges and one of the causes of much suffering and, and disruption in modern life, modern culture, is our instability both physical, traveling all the time, or moving house every, every couple of years. I think in the States you move every house every, every couple of years. Uh, and relationships, above all. The most important aspect of stability are your relationships. And as we know, relationships in modern culture are very difficult to maintain, to sustain because it's quite difficult to maintain a stable relationship if you are not living a stable life physically and psychologically. So this, quest, this, this precept of stability has again two aspects. The external aspect, don't go running around too much. Benedict says it isn't good to, to, to run around too much too much travel, I can testify to that. Uh, he knows that people will be traveling and he has some advice on how you handle travel when you're away from the community. But he, he, uh, he emphasizes the, the value of, of physical stability and emotional stability within the relationships that make up the monastery. And so there is that external aspect of stability, but there's also the internal aspect of stability. How do we come to a balance and an equanimity in ourselves when our minds are full of thoughts and our emotions uh, are often very sensitive and easily disturbed by somebody saying something unpleasant to you or just something coming up in yourself, some old habits, uh, as we were talking about yesterday. <clears throat> so the meaning of stability is, is also to be found in an interior stability a calmness of mind, what Jesus 
means when he says, don't be worrying all the time about all your problems. Sounds easy, you know, don't worry. But what he's actually saying is, work at don't worrying. You can make a choice not to be constantly in a state of anxiety and stress and worry and fear. And the, the way he, the way he uh, advises us most of all to do that is prayer. It is the rhythm of prayer that gives us an internal interior stability. And of course, a rhythm implies regularity. The word rule means, is, in Latin, is regular. So, a, a ruler, when I was a child, we, we, we had rulers. Do they still have them? I suppose they do. Do they still do? They, but they still do? For children? Oh, good. So, you, you, you had a ruler. You'd buy it at the beginning of the term. And you would use the ruler to underline the titles of your essays and things like that. So the ruler is there to draw a straight line, and a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. So we often think of the kind of life that Benedict is describing as if it were life in the slow lane. But you come and live it, and you'll realize it's not the slow lane. It's a fast track, in some ways. And that's why he uses images of speed. He says we must run along the way of the Lord's commands so that we come to the experience of what he calls the inexpressible delight of love. So, externally, you see the rhythm of life, praying at certain times, eating your meals after the times of prayer, and, you know, and then meetings and organization and structures. Of course, the rhythm of life, something predictable, more regular in that sense than most other forms of life in the modern world. That rhythm of life is what I think many people are hungry for today. And much of our anxiety and stress and feeling of disorientation is due to the fact that we lack this fundamental rhythm of life. I'm not saying everyone should live in monasteries or in meditation communities, but nevertheless, uh, we are, uh, when you do come, and we hope that you feel this here, when you do come and live within this kind of rhythm of life that you're finding some way of achieving a greater balance and uh, de-stressing uh, in your own life. And then the third principle of the rule, the vow, the third vow, is conversion of life. Conversatio morum. In conversion of life, it's not about having a dramatic evangelical conversion at, a, at a, a, a Pentecostal rally where you, you say, I'm going to change my life. Conversion of life or mores is a continuous openness to change. 
because life is always changing. Again, the kind of life that Benedict describes, like in community, with this balance of prayer, work and study, organized around these times of, of prayer, uh, it might, from the outside, look rather boring. And that was one of the reasons I was reluctant, eventually, at first, to go into monastic life myself. Because I wanted to have, you know, I thought this would be a bit boring, just going through that timetable every day. In fact, I was never bored again. And uh, every day delivers a new, uh, something new. Now, maybe that's not true of every kind of personality, maybe people are different, because not everyone is going to want to live like this. But I think, nevertheless, this kind of life can illustrate and symbolize uh, some essential principles of all forms of human life that are balanced and uh, truly human and, and assist human development, as we were talking about yesterday. So there is a relationship, of course, between this kind of life that Benedict describes, the kind of life we're living here, and every other kind of life. There are essential principles that run through human development and meaningful human life. And one of these is moderation, which is what we're going to reflect, what we're reflecting on this, um, in this retreat. <coughs> so conversion of life <coughs> is being open, radically open, <coughs> to the power of transformation, which is released when you practice obedience, deep listening, and uh, stability. When stability and obedience start to become living uh, principles in your life, they will release a power of transformation, of conversion. And that power will continue to change you for the better uh, from that moment and, and forever. When, uh, some years ago, the, uh, I asked the Dalai Lama to speak to a large group of Benedictine monks and, and nuns and, uh, on, the, on the rule of St. Benedict. And we didn't have much time to prepare for this, uh, this, this talk and he hadn't, uh, he hadn't uh, I think, read, didn't know too much about the rule of St. Benedict, so I gave him quite a quick summary of these three vows. And, uh, and monks pretty much understand each other across the different traditions. Um, you know, you recognize uh, somebody who's following that same kind of path or life, whether they're Buddhist or Christian or wherever. So, uh, so he picked it up very quickly, and of course his own deep wisdom and intuition and spiritual intelligence was, was awakened. 
And he listened to these three vows of Benedict, and he said, uh, the one that is most similar to the Buddhist way of thinking is conversion. Conversion, he felt, you know, picked up the Buddhist idea of impermanence and interdependence. So, and then he proceeded to speak to these monks and nuns in a way that totally amazed them and helped them to understand familiar concepts in a, in a new way. So, let's look at one of these uh, one of these essential principles that you find in the rule that is associated with the rule and explains why this little document was so powerful for so long in, in society. Um, monasticism has existed in every form of human civilization once it's reached a certain level of development, you find forms of monastic life developing. Um, and these, this monastic uh, institution, if you like, or this monastic uh, element in society is, a, is a, traditionally a very uh, powerful channel for transmitting spiritual wisdom from generation to generation. So, um, we see this uh, very clearly in the rule as being based not upon concepts, but upon lived experience. So, as I said, the rule of Benedict is not a sutra. It's not full of abstract ideas and principles and metaphysical or theological uh, ideas. The first section, called the prologue, does uh, describe the meaning of the life in Christian terms as a search for God and is a life that is meant to open us to the divinizing light. So living this life, he says, has this purpose, that it opens us to the light of God that divinizes us turns us into God. So it's quite a, quite a strong uh, theological, spiritual principle there. But the rest of the rule is, is about things like sleeping arrangements, what you eat, what you drink, how you organize your timetable every day, what you wear, how you deal with conflict, how you deal with members of the community who go a bit crazy, uh, how authority works, how a spirit of charity and love uh, can be maintained with the right use of authority, and, uh, and practical things about how you elect uh, the abbot, how you uh, organize uh, a large uh, group of people uh, so that they get on with their work and they get on with their job. He tells us how to handle the tools of the monastery, um, what kind of work can be done and how it should be done, 
and how the times of prayer should be organized. So a lot of detailed work, a lot of detailed um, descriptions of the life and work of the, of the daily life of the community. So, uh, and this apparently quite mundane description of how you live together with others has become one of the great wisdom documents of the Christian tradition. And wisdom, if it's wisdom, is universal, and so it can be translated or understood uh, across the different um, traditions or and even, for example, in the secular world. I mean, and in the rule, Benedict doesn't talk a lot about God or a lot about Jesus. God and Jesus are there, but he doesn't talk about them as much as you might think. <clears throat> and uh, so this, uh, this, this the kind of wisdom that he is distilling and communicating uh, in the rule has often, and, and is still being very useful for people who are running corporations or training people or managing teams. So, for example, at the NBA course at Georgetown, uh, where we teach meditation and leadership, we have a section on the chapter where, uh, on, on um, the, uh, the abbot, the qualities of the abbot. And the NBA students uh, get a lot out of this because the way Benedict describes the qualities of leadership that the abbot should show of course relate to lead leadership uh, in all kinds of institutions. So, but one of the, one of the qualities that, with which the rule is associated most is the quality of moderation. Moderatio, the via media, the middle way. And this is a universal wisdom. We'll look at some of the other uh, expressions of it uh, later. But today we'll just look at how Benedict uh, illustrates this wisdom of moderation or the middle way. The Buddha speaks about the middle way. Jesus speaks about the narrow little path that leads to life. And um, and I think it, it, Plato does, and so on. So, um, this is expressed in two words in Latin, naked nemis, nothing in excess. Nothing in excess. All things, he says, must be done with moderation. And I think if we were to think of and the purpose of Lent, The best way of understanding it, I think, is to see it as a way of resetting the, the principle of moderation in your life. Because we all tend to go to extremes. And if you think of uh, the symbol of a narrow little path or a knife edge, if a knife is to cut, it needs to be sharp. And think of moderation as the sharpening 
of this knife edge rather than some kind of compromise or some kind of confusion or some kind of evasion of the challenge of the moment. There's a, 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 a film some of you may have seen, I'm not sure if it's called The Wire or The Walk, but it's about the, the walk across a tightrope um, that Pierre, Pierre, his name, Pierre, Pierre Le Petit, who was a French insane person who liked to walk on tight ropes above very high uh, things. And he, when the Twin Towers were built in New York, he stretched, illegally of course, stretched a, uh, an, an, a tight rope between the two. He shot it with an arrow from one side to the other and uh, tightened it, and then early one morning was going to walk across. And he had a group of devoted, insane people working with him to do this. And he readily admits that he's mad, but uh, mad people can teach us something about sanity. So anyway, he, uh, he went up there and walked across this uh, tightrope, hundreds of meters above the ground of New York. But when he got to the other side, he found the police were there. And the police were shouting at him. And if you wouldn't have, in, in the film, you can't understand how they would be so stupid as to try to upset him up there. But anyway, they were shouting at him. And then, so he turned around and walked back to the other side, to the other town. But he found that the police were there as well. And they were also shouting. So he spent, I think it was 43 minutes, walking backwards and forwards across this tightrope. And at one point, he, he, he lay down on the ground, on, uh, sorry, on the ground, on the wire, on his back, and then stood up again. And he was carrying a stick, of course, a pole, and then went then down on one knee. And I watched this film on a plane, 35,000 feet, and I, I don't like heights, certainly not like that. So I had to go to the bathroom in, at one point, and when I got into the bathroom, I felt my heart beating <laughs> at great speed. So, uh, and eventually he finished his performance, and he, he came off and was arrested. And the judge the next day said, you know, you broke the law. Um, but you're a hero, you know, everybody said, this, this guy, you became, became a celebrity, a great hero, everybody loved him. And so that his, his punishment uh, was to teach tightrope walking in Central Park to children. But not at that height, but just, you know, two or three feet above the ground. So... Uh, The most interesting insight, I think, into, into his obsession 
which is relevant to us, was when he's, he, he said, when he, puts, when he put his foot, one foot, on the wire, at that moment, he has said, one foot on the wire, one foot on the, on the top of the tower. And he said, I was filled with utter horror and fear. I just felt this abyss and impending destruction, just total terror. But then, when I put my second foot on the wire, I was filled with complete peace and balance. And then he was in this sort of ecstatic peace. He, he walked, you know, from one side to the other uh, in joy. So that's how we should understand moderation. Is getting us from one side to the other in joy and peace and us, enabling us to have a really good time. As St. Benedict says, to run along the way of the Lord's commands with an inexpressible delight of love. So, what's the difference between putting one foot on the wire and the other foot on the wire, or both feet on the wire. What's the difference? Let's go say like France. L'engagement. Engagement. Commitment. Commitment. Letting go. Letting go. And how, how do you overcome the fear? Because you've got one foot on and you're terrified of putting the other foot on. What overcomes the fear? Confidence. Mm -hmm. Faith. Faith. Experience. Experience, yes, you've done it before. Each time you do it, you have a little bit more confidence. Or detachment. A detachment. What? Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, that's good. It's, it's the unity, it's the, the feeling of... It's, 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 ne you, it's necessary to put the other foot there because otherwise you're halfway. But when both feet are there, like that, then that's, there's, there's, a, there's a attraction and a... a a satisfaction in completing it, yes. But it's also inherently unstable, one foot on the skyscraper, one foot on yes. the water. It's two different, it's like having one foot in the sea and one foot on the road. That's right. It's, it's neither one nor the other. Yeah, that's right. It was like the story, um, somebody told me they went they were, they, were in, uh, they were living in a house and the person in the room above them every night would make quite a lot of noise and uh, they would, the thing that really annoyed, annoyed him was they would take one shoe off, 
throw it on the ground, and then the other shoe would throw it on the ground. This was every night. And he said to this person, he said, you know, could you not throw the shoes on the ground like that, because it's quite noisy and annoys me. So the guy said, yes, okay, I, I will, but then he kept on forgetting. So the other person reminded him. And then one night, again, he, he heard <laughs> he heard one shoe falling on the ground. <laughs> but then the person upstairs remembered. <laughs> so, so they didn't throw the other shoe. So this guy was waiting. <laughs> and he said that was much more upsetting than the second one. Good. So, well, let's just have uh, a look at um, what Benedict tells us about the wisdom of moderation. As we begin Lent and we're going to do something, you might think that Lent is not about moderation, Lent is about becoming a bit more extreme. So the first thing he says about Lent is, is you be, be careful that you don't go to an extreme in your asceticism, in giving things up or making life hard on yourself. And there's a, that, would be, that would be counterproductive, be a contradiction of the purpose of Lent. You see this also in the stories in the life of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, the early Christian monks, when you read about their asceticism, sometimes it sounds a bit extreme, or the eating and drinking and the poverty of life. But actually, uh, for them, uh, it, the, the most important thing was that they, they didn't do it to excess. Although to us it might sound a bit excessive, for them the danger was being too extreme in their moderation. So moderation, even, even in what might seem to us ex extreme discipline, was the essential principle to protect. And uh, so the first thing to say about moderation is, of course, you can't define it. You can't define it. Because what is moderate to me today may not be moderate to me tomorrow, and what is moderate to me because of my personality and temperament may not be moderate to you. So Benedict is acutely aware of the differences between people. At the same time, he's aware of a universal principle. So the question is, how do you apply a universal principle in a group of diverse people? And this is his wisdom, that he is able to show us how to do this. And the great principle he advocates is discretion. Not legalism, not blind obedience to a rule, not a bureaucratic or legalistic or oppressive kind of uh, rulemaking, but discretion 
Discretion, he says, is the mother of virtue. So unless you have this quality of discretion, which, knows, which means you know how to adapt to different circumstances and different people at different times, unless you have this spiritual intelligence, or this particular kind of intelligence, as we know there are different kinds of, it, of intelligence, People speak about analytical intelligence, creative intelligence, and practical intelligence. Uh, there's the kind of intelligence that can be measured in IQ tests, you know, where you have to count the number of, you know, squares in, in a picture, and you know, all these sort of analytical uh, things. So there's IQ kind of intelligence, there's emotional intelligence, you could be very, very, have a great IQ and be totally insensitive to other people and not be able to read other people in any way. Uh, but there's also spiritual intelligence. Spiritual intelligence, I think, is a distillation or an integration of all the many different kinds of intelligence that we have and that we need to respect. So, so Benedict is, the, is uh, very clear that discretion is, this or spiritual intelligence, we might say, is the mother of, of balance and, and wisdom. So let's just look at what he says, okay, in, in chapter 49, which is his chapter on how Lent should be observed. Uh, the life of a monk ought to be a continuous Lent, the first sentence. In other words, what you are doing during Lent is try, is, should be your way of life and your practice uh, continuously. We should be in this quality of, of discretion and balance, and moderation, all the time. But because we are weak and human, we constantly easily fall out of balance and into excess and therefore we take a particular period of time to concentrate upon what balance moderation really mean. So we make a particular focus during this 40 days. But he says uh, not many people have the strength for this. He's very realistic, he's very focused upon human humanity, human weakness, human frailty. He's not writing for saints and heroes and, you know, great martyrs. He's writing for people like us, human, human beings who have weaknesses. So not many people have the strength to remain in this state of moderation permanently. Um, so, we are urged, he says, we urge the entire community during these days of Lent to keep 
their way of life with a particular emphasis on, um, on uh, balance and moderation. So in other words, the community helps the individual. So the community will, be, will decide uh, to live in a certain way or to put a certain emphasis upon moderation and discretion during this 40 days. And that will help each, each member of the community who, in their own personal weakness, would find that more difficult to do. So there's strength in community. This is not an individualistic way or to God or a race, the, comp the competition uh, between yourself and others. So take the ego out of it is what he's saying really here. And this is why he, he says later in this chapter, uh, you should share what you are going to do for Lent. If you're going to do something for Lent, he recommends that people do, then uh, you should share this with someone. He says the abbot. But, so I, and I think to share it means that you, it, it no longer, it's no longer owned by the ego. You're not showing off to yourself or to, to God or whatever. And this way, he says, you'll be able to uh, rebalance yourself during these days of Lent and, uh, and to redress the imbalance that you may have fallen into in, in your daily life. So, the first thing he says then is, we do this by refusing to indulge evil habits. So, is there something in your life that you really would like to get rid of? That you know is not good for you? Could be anything. Could be binge watching on Netflix. Or it could be something more to do with your temperament. The way you allow yourself to fly off the handle. To be critical of other people to gossip. These are habits. These are evil habits. Habits that don't do good to anyone. So, if you are aware of something in your life that in your best moments you would like to, to get rid of, then don't indulge them. Make a point of not indulging them so much uh, during Lent. And devoting ourselves to prayer with tears, to reading, to compunction of heart, and self-restraint. So, prayer. So, prayer with tears. It doesn't mean to say you are crying all the way through meditation. But it means, why do, we, why, why do tears come? When, when do we cry? When do we weep? When we feel overwhelmed? When we lose control? When 
that might be in joy. We might weep for joy. Weep at a very funny joke. Or we weep in great suffering when life overwhelms us. So tears are a sign of release, safety valve. And we also get rid of physical toxins in our tears, apparently. So the early uh, Christian teachers of prayer spoke about the gift of tears, and they would say we should pray for the gift of tears because this is a sign we're, we're letting go. And many people will, many, not everyone by any means, but many people will uh, report, you know, that they sometimes when they're praying, when they're meditating, uh, tears fall down their cheeks. Not that they're sad, but just it seems some kind of overflow. So when he speaks about praying with tears, he's saying, allow yourself to be devoted to this practice of prayer, and by your devotion to it, by taking it seriously, you will be able to let go. Compunction of heart, I think I spoke about that the other day, opening your heart and keeping it open, uh, even when it's broken, to reading, good thing to, to do a little bit extra during Lent, is to uh, give yourself more time for reading, and to self-restraint. So there are things that you could, you could uh, either give up or restrain yourself from doing or limit, you know. And especially if it's something that you know you, you are perhaps doing too much of, too much coffee, too much watching the news, or too much uh, work, you know, uh, not being able to let go of, of your emails or your work at the right time of the day. So, and during these days, we will add to the usual measure of our service something extra by way of prayer, for example. So this, the, you, you, you add something, give yourself more to something that is good, that you would like to do. This is really about liking. It's not about punishing yourself, it's about liking yourself better. So if there's something that you know that you should do and would like to do, then do it. And if there's something that you know is not good for you, and you don't like, then stop it. Let go of it. So, whatever we do during Lent, in a sense, is designed to make us more balanced, more happy, more uh, at ease with ourselves. And we do this, he says, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's why in the Gospel today, we heard Jesus say, don't think that if you do some, something for Lent, it's about looking miserable or feeling miserable or feeling like you're a martyr or feeling that you're, going to, that you're coming closer to God because you are uh, suffering or denying yourself something. 
And certainly, don't. sometimes we compensate for doing that by showing off. So you, you, you're doing something that is a little difficult, but you cope with the difficulty of it by letting other people see that you're doing it. So it sort of strokes the ego then. But it kind of complicates, complicates the process. So we should, we, we should, whatever we do, whatever we don't do, we should do with the joy of the Holy Spirit in, in modesty. Um, and two, two things, for example, he, he, he illustrates this with needless talking and idle jesting. So, that, that's a good thing to focus on. How we speak, when we speak, and idle jesting. He's not saying you should should be miserable, but he's saying, and I, you see this, I think, in, in, in many uh, situations, in workplaces or in communities, that um, you will have a character, particular personality, who's, who's very funny, um, and always, you know, can turn any situation into, into laughter. But then you realize they're always like that. They're always funny. And you realize that this is a way, actually, of avoiding a, a, a proper relationship or a proper communication. It's not really being present. So, idle jesting, so this kind of false uh, humor, so that we can look forward to Holy Easter with joy and spiritual longing. So, spiritual longing is a good thing. We, we long for many things. We long for chocolate. We long for many ways of satisfying our desires. But here he's saying there's another kind of desire, spiritual longing, and if we can make space in ourselves for this fundamental root desire for God, for wholeness, then that will release joy. This is a good, holy longing. So, um, so I think that might just be enough to show how Benedict wants us to approach Lent uh, and to, I think there's a, so uh, how to approach Lent and, and how to uh, see Lent as a way of sharpening our, uh, our balance, our moderation, uh, so that we can get, keep both feet on the, on the tightrope.